Hi everyone and welcome to the history of Russia. Or, to be more specific, welcome back to the history of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode 43, The Romanovs Divided, part 2, Sofia. Okay, so this time it's me who's been a bit under the weather, but I'm back now, raring to go, so let's do a quick recap. So last time out we covered the short but intriguing reign of Tsar Fyodor III, which ended as tended to be normal in these situations with his death in 1682, aged just 20. This week I'll start off by appraising Fyodor's time in the top job, and then we'll take a look at the characters of his aunt Irina and his sisters Sophia and Martha, paying particular attention to Sophia and hardly any to the others really, and then we'll spend the rest of the episode starting to look at the events that occurred in Russia between 1682 and 1689, and which would, in the main, be dominated by two people. Before we get going on all of that, though, I've got my usual couple of announcements to make. So, the next episode will be The Romanovs Divided Part 3, and then that will be followed by A State of the Nation, with a twist. So there have been two previous States of the Nation, episodes 10 and 28, in which I did an assessment of how things stood in the years 1015 and 1505, and the underlying themes or reasons for why things were as they stood. State of the Nation 3 will do the same thing, but with a slight tweak, and this is where the twist comes in, because the second part of the episode is going to be based upon your questions. So if there's something you want to ask about Russia in the 16th and 17th centuries, or indeed any other period, or about the Ottomans or the Poles, not forgetting the Lithuanians or the Mongols, or anything really, then please get your questions in by Thursday the 21st of July, using one of the following methods. So via Twitter, where you can find the podcast at HistoryRussia1, then via email, uh, and you can get in touch by email on Nordic World, so that's N O R D I C W O R L D at Outlook.com. And then finally, via the website, which is www.historyofrussia.net. And there you've got two options. You can either use the get in touch option, which gives you a template which you can fill out and press send, and that will get to me. Or you can use the voicemail option. That's the little microphone logo in the bottom right-hand corner of the homepage. So all of that sounds fine, but what happens if there are only a handful of questions or horror of horrors, none at all? Well, in that case, I have a number of options. I could invent some fictitious listeners and questions, which would be fun. Or I could just record an episode of silence. No cheering at the back. But seriously, if I don't get any questions, then I'll have to revert to the traditional way of doing things. But I, I do reckon I'll get some. So to avoid that happening, start thinking about anything that you'd like to ask now, and then make sure you get them in nice and early, so that I can incorporate them into the episode. 
And by nice and early, I'll repeat that it's by Thursday, the 21st of July. Well, that, that's the cutoff. If you can get them in before that, that would be great. So just to clarify then, the next episode will be Romanov's Divided Part 3. And then there will be an episode that is either part State of the Nation, part Listener's Questions, or worst case scenario, all State of the Nation. And then secondly, listener Ziggy left a great review, but also made some interesting and valid points related to Russia, or in particular, Moscow's sole appropriation of the terms Russia and Russians. You can check out the full review on the website. And Ziggy, I'll I'll include the points that you made in the forthcoming listeners' questions episode, so at least there will be one, and also hopefully try to make some kind of case for the defence. Okay, so if everyone's set, let's crack on and do some history of Russia. And we'll start by doing that quick appraisal of Fyodor's six-year stint in charge, because even though it was short and he died young, his handling of events and his legacy stand apart from most of the other Romanov czars and tsarinas. From the very start, back in 1676, the cards were stacked against the young Tsar. He'd been Alexei's ninth child, and he was sickly and frail, and indeed one of the reasons that his father Alexei remarried after Fyodor's mother Maria had died was down to the fact that no one expected Fyodor, or his brother Ivan for that matter, to still be around when Alexei eventually gave up the ghost. Also, Fyodor was a Miloslavsky Romanov, and in 1676 there was a Narishkin Romanov regime in charge. And if the rumours are to be believed, it was only due to the protestations of his sister Sophia that he became Tsar at all. Alexei had wanted to go with the then three-year-old Peter, and a regency headed up by Matveyev and Natalia, Peter's mother. So the omens were never looking good. The new Tsar was 14 years old, debilitated by scurvy, stuck in the middle of a simmering family feud. Russia was at war with the Ottomans, and no one really expected him to be around for long, or show any initiative or leadership if he did manage to survive. But survive he did, and more than that, he was intelligent enough to realise the predicament that both he and Russia were in. And so in the early days of his reign, he played it safe, towed the line and stayed out of the limelight. Self-preservation was his number one priority. But gradually, as Fyodor grew just that little bit older, he slowly moved away from survival mode and started to exert his own authority. The key turning point was July 1680, when he had reached breaking point with the Miloslavskis, and he found the courage to get rid of the Scorpion. And then later in 1681, the whole lot of them, including his sister Sophia, who had maintained a degree of influence, were sent packing. And it's during that 1680-81 to 81 period that, Tsar, that the Tsar became a reform-minded whirlwind of activity, someone who, conscious of Western European liberalism, attitude and learning, was determined to adjust the path that Russia had found herself on. Now, in the cold light of day, and with a nod to Peter the Great and his dramatic 18th century reforms, which, podcast-wise, are just around the corner, it could be said that Fyodor's attempts at change were just tinkering at the edges. But I'm not so sure, 
His changes were comprehensive, wide-ranging, and encompassed taxation, the military, the justice and education systems, plus boundary reform, and a massive rebuilding program in Moscow. And I think that if he'd have been healthier and had lived longer, he would have gone on to achieve a whole lot more. His legacy, I believe, was to show his peers and successors that despite the obstacles that he had faced, Russia could be transformed and with a bit of luck and the right person in charge, could take its rightful place as one of Europe's great nations, albeit on its own terms and in its own special way, something perhaps that the present regime in Moscow could take heed of. But in all honesty, it's probably a bit too late for that. You never know though. You never know. Okay, we'll leave Fyodor there and move on to taking a look at three Miloslavsky women who exerted or tried to exert their influence upon events before, during and after the Fyodorian period. And as already mentioned, we are for the most part talking about just the one Miloslavsky woman, Sofia, because the other two, Irina and Marfa, were in the main followers rather than leaders. I don't think I'll ever get used to saying the word Marfa. Irina, who was Alexei's older sister and who the old Tsar had treated with a large degree of deference, had supported her niece, Sophia, when she had made her objections to Alexei's second marriage to Natalia. However, during Fyodor's reign, Irina's influence waned and by 1679 she was dead. Tsarevna Marfa, who was one of Tsar Alexei's older daughters, picked up the baton from her aunt Irina of providing unwavering support for her younger sister Sophia, but little discernible action. And we'll find out what happens to her a little later on in our story, well in fact it will be in part three. But it was Tsarevna Sophia, Alexei's sixth child, who after the Scorpion's death, and at a time when royal princesses spent most of their time unheard and out of sight, who was to be the main thorn in the Narushkin side. She'd been the voice of the Miloslavskis since 1671, making sure, despite the restraints of the Terem, that her father, brother and stepmother knew exactly where she stood and exactly how she felt about Alexei's second marriage and the attempts to put young Peter on the throne when her father had died. She was by all accounts a redoubtable woman who, due to the restrictions just mentioned, had used her contacts and allies to keep the Miloslavsky agenda at the forefront of people's minds, and on the flip side, used them to keep her abreast of the latest news, rumours and gossip. When Sophia was made aware of her brother Fyodor's death and the subsequent decision to make Peter the next Tsar, She devised what can only be called a knee-jerk plan of action, which, based on what was about to transpire, seemed to be made up of nothing more tangible than a mixture of chutzpah and hope-desperation. Well, hope-desperation really one and the same thing, aren't they? So on the day of Fyodor's funeral, she reportedly stormed into the cathedral and then watched the service in full view of everybody, rather than, as per the custom, from behind the screens at the rear with the rest of her sisters. She then demanded and surprisingly got an audience with the patriarch, the chief minister and the leading boyars, where she laid out her own view on the succession, which was that 
her brother Ivan and herself should rule Russia jointly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Once they picked themselves up off the floor, stopped laughing and got they both got their breaths back, Joachim and Matveyev completely ruled out the Tsarevna's suggestion. But undeterred, Sophia had another go. How about Ivan and Peter rule jointly? But again, Joachim, Matveyev and the Boyars said no and then refused to discuss the matter any further and left the meeting. So Sophia now suspected, probably rightly, that the time for negotiating was at an end. There was no way that the Narishkin regime would ever have her and Ivan in charge. Mainly because A... They detested her. B, she was a woman. And C, even though Ivan had been passed over in the succession, his health and mental state were becoming worse. And we should probably pause there for a minute and take a look at what kind of state Ivan's health was in. So Ivan, like his brother Fyodor, had suffered ill health for most, if not all, of his life. But unlike his brother, whose symptoms were mainly physical, well, in fact, were physical. Poor Ivan's illness affected him physically and mentally and seems to have been caused by some kind of unknown congenital defect. There is a report or observation by an Austrian envoy which describes Ivan, in the language of the day, as sickly, feeble-minded and congenitally blind. And so whilst he was legally the next in line to become Tsar, the reality was that Unfortunately, there was just no way that he would have been able to perform the role. So at the end of the day, Sophia had two options. One, give up and accept the status quo. Or two, come up with something fiendish and probably underhand that would sway things in favour of herself and the Miloslavskis. And it's here that we follow Chekhov's maxim. That's the author and playwright Anton Chekhov and not Pavel Chekhov, the bloke from the original Star Trek. I.e. you don't make mention of a loaded gun in a story unless you intend someone to use it. And for us, that gun is the Streltsy Regiment who had mutinied that I briefly mentioned in the last episode. So if you remember, the mutineers' original complaint had been about their colonel who was keeping hold of their wages. Their divisional commander had then taken the colonel's side and had had a few of the men knouted, hence the rest of the regiment deciding to down tools. Well, once the other Streltsy regiments heard what had happened, they too decided to mutiny for various, multiple long-held grievances, and it's at this point Sophia decided to take a gamble with her fiendish and underhand option too. She, or more probably her people, started to spread gossip and rumour amongst the mutineers. So the gossip was that Ivan Narushkin, Natalia's brother, who had been promoted to head up the armoury, had sat in the Tsar's throne 
and had even tried on Monomac's cap. The rumour was that poor sickly Ivan had been denied the Tsardom and his life was in peril, and then the icing on the cake, the Norishkins may have already killed him. And before you or they could say, hang on though, what are we being asked to do here? Let, let's just take five minutes to think this through. The Streltsy had marched upon the Kremlin, burst into the palace and were demanding to see young Ivan in the flesh. Natalia, hearing the commotion and thinking on her feet, hurriedly woke both Ivan and Peter, urgently sent for the Patriarch and Matveyev, and then, when all were assembled, led the boys to the top of the palace's main staircase so that the mutinous mob could see that everyone, but mainly the boys, and mainly Ivan, were safe and well. Nothing to see here. Everybody back to their barracks, please. But just as Natalia and her entourage turned to go back into their apartments, the cry went up, Ivan Vazar, death to the traitors! Matveyev and a loyal Streltsy commander appealed for calm, but they were too late. The mob raced up the stairs and chucked the commander over the side where he was impaled on the raised pikes of the Streltsy below. Matveyev tried to escape, but the Streltsy caught up with him and butchered the defenceless old man in front of Natalia, Ivan and Peter. And now with their blood well and truly up, the mutineers rampaged through the rest of the palace, looking for anyone who was either an Arishkin or a supporter of the Fyodorian regime. But their main target, the armourer Ivan Nerishkin, who was hiding somewhere in the palace, managed to elude them. And it's at this point that Sophia, who was being kept fully informed, played her final card. She got word to Natalia that she could try to persuade the Streltsy to back off, but suspected that they would only do this if Ivan, that's the armourer and not the young Tsar, was given up to the mob. If Natalia did this, then she, Sophia, would try her hardest to see that no harm would come to him and everyone would be safe. Yeah, right. But really, what choice did Natalia have? She was surrounded by hostile elements and no one was going to come riding over the hill to save the day. In her mind, no matter how many times she tried to square the circle, it was either her brother or her son. And so Ivan Narushkin was handed over to the Streltsy. And we don't know if Sophia tried to intercede on his behalf. Probably not, though, because after being questioned and tortured, he was quietly done away with. Well, actually, it wasn't that quiet, but I'll spare you the details. What Sophia was able to achieve was to persuade the Streltsy and their new commander, a certain Ivan Kovensky, to hand back those Narishkin supporters who'd been previously rounded up. Incidentally, Kovensky, by the way, was an old believer who'd somehow gotten it into his head that Sophia shared his beliefs, but more of that later. So now we have Sophia the peacemaker suddenly leading efforts at compromise and reconciliation. Pretty clever, really, when you think about it, and in fact, she reveled in her new role, telling anyone who would listen that she was only doing what she was doing for the good of the country. Anyway, a few days later, the insurrection was as good as over. The Streltsy were back on their leash, and further in-depth discussions had taken place between Sophia, Natalia, Patriarch Joachim, and the Boyars. And the result was, well, 
On the surface, all appeared to be harmonious, because on the 26th of May, 1682, Ivan was proclaimed as Senior Tsar Ivan V. Peter was proclaimed as Junior Tsar Peter I. And wait for it, Sophia was proclaimed as the Great Sovereign Lady, thereby becoming the first woman to effectively rule Russia since St. Olga, who had sort of been in charge for her son Sviatoslav I for a while, back in the 10th century. But Sophia's power grab was in effect based on a false compromise because her very neat yet contrived solution hadn't fully persuaded the entire nobility or the church, although for the time they were both prepared to go along for the ride, and nor had it dealt with the hopes and mindsets of two key people, Ivan Kovansky and Peter Romanov. Plus, and this was really important, she needed an influential ally, someone she could trust implicitly to help her run the country. We'll come on to Peter in the next episode, because for now, the new Streltsy commander, Kovansky, was Sophia's more immediate problem. Power had quickly gone to his head. Already convinced that he was some kind of kingmaker, he was now starting to question with his officers whether Sophia needed to be around and what or who could stop him from being the man in charge. And so with that in mind, his next step was to suggest to Sophia that a public meeting be set up to work out how and when Alexei and Nikon's religious reforms could be reversed. But he was out to ambush her, basically. Sophia, somewhat on the spot, agreed to attend but brought some time by saying that such an important subject could only be discussed after the coronation, which was planned for the end of June. And why the delay? Mainly because, as there were now two czars, an extra set of royal regalia would be required. And these things took time. She also needed time to get some support for her cause sorted out. And for this, we'll need to use Chekhov's maxim again, because as her head of the Pozhovsky Prikaz, or the Foreign Office, Sofia chose Prince Vasily Golitsyn, who, if you remember, had been sent down to Kiev by Fyodor to sort out the mess the generals had been making of the war with the Ottomans. OK, that's about it for this week, but in the next episode we'll get to see what happens with that double coronation, check to see how the meeting between Sophia and the old believer Kovansky goes, and then for the rest of the episode we'll cover the relationship between Sophia and Golitsyn and their time in the limelight, plus we'll see how Ivan and Peter get along in their shadow. So, in the meantime, stay safe, keep your heads down and your chins up, and I'll speak to you all soon. Oh, and don't forget those questions. <laughs> <laughs>